Good morning. Well, of course, I know it's only the end of July, but we of ESL are starting to plan our program for the fall. I want to let all of our teachers and staff know again that we will be having a meeting next Sunday after church. Uh, lunch will be provided, so please come. And also, I want to let you guys know it's a joint that we can plan for ESL. You know, ESL has been wonderful. I love ESL. So please keep us in prayer as we plan. And also, we are looking for new volunteers. You know, we want more people. So if you have it in your hearts that you want to help people know Christ from different countries, let me know. We will hook you in. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. The Spanish-speaking Bible study will resume Saturday, August 12th at 6 p.m. at the home of Brother Joe and Amy Ruiz. I wonder who those people are, but you know. Please just have a moment of silence. Amen. Please rise at this time for the call to worship. Our call to worship comes from Psalms 105, verses 1 through 5. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deed among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous work. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous work that he has done, his miracles, and the judgment he uttered. Our opening hymn of adoration is hymn 380. Crown him with many crowns. Oh 
God, our Father, you are worthy to be glorified. There is no one like you. You are the creator and supreme Lord of everything. Therefore, we plead, please, Lord, meet with us this morning. Accept our worship and forgive our sins. We know that we are often unfaithful. We fail and our flesh is weak. We sin, and so again we ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for purging us from all sins and making us righteous in your sight. Thank you for the imputed righteousness of Christ. We could never repay the grace and mercy you have granted us. Make us and practice what we are before you in position. Grant to us increasingly practical righteousness and holiness. By your word and spirit, mold us into the very image of Christ. Bless us this morning and speak to, to us through your word in Galatians. Feed our souls that we may delight in you and only in you. We ask these things in the name that is above every name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. Exodus 14, 1 through 18. Last week we read that God commands that the firstborn of the people and animals be consecrated to him. If you recall, God had saved them from the death in the tenth plague. So God now calls for them to dedicate the firstborn for his service. God also commands Israel to teach their children how God liberated them from Egypt, the house of slavery. We also see how the Lord leads them on the way by day in a pillar of cloud to cover them from the sun, and at night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the darkness. Today in this chapter 14, the people of Israel left Egypt, but are in a state of unbelief. They have forgotten how God has shown his sovereignty and supreme power. They see Pharaoh coming with 600 chariots, their back against the Red Sea, and they panic. This panic leads them to contemplate the life back in Egypt in slavery. We see a bold leader in Moses who encourages the people to trust in the very God they have forgotten. This chapter 14 teaches us how God is sovereign in his decree and controls all the events of life and death. God is faithful to his word and fulfills what he has promised. He will be salvation for his children. He is our only salvation, and we are not worthy of it. Let us read Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. Again, Exodus 14, verses 1 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-harath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-saphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, 
the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea by Piha Harath in front of Baal Safan. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you should never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians should know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. This is the word of God. Amen. Pastor Rodney will come up now, a sacrament of baptism. It is our joy uh, this morning to be able to uh, have the uh, sacrament of baptism of, and to baptize Benjamin Nathaniel Ely. And in a moment, I'm going to ask um, uh, Ned and Christina uh, to come forward along with the elders. But before they do, I, I want to just say a few words uh, about baptism of covenant children. The sacrament of baptism is administered in the church in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ that the nations would be converted and baptized and that they would be taught all that Christ has commanded. Baptism represents and seals that union with Jesus Christ that believers enjoy by faith and that outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the heart of everyone who is regenerate and whose sins have been cleansed. And baptism of the children of believers 
um, when we baptize our children, they are received into the membership of the covenant community, the visible body of Christ. Our children are, uh, have the right to baptism because of the covenant of grace and the way that that covenant was instituted with Abraham when he believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he was commanded by God to apply the sign of the covenant, circumcision, both to himself and to his children. And God said, I will be a God to you and to your children. And as children were considered then to belong within the within the, the bonds of Israel, they belonged to Israel under the first administration of the covenant of grace. So it is that today, in the new administration of the covenant under the Lord Jesus Christ, our children continue to belong with us in the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. As uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 teaches that circumcision is fulfilled. The meaning of circumcision is fulfilled uh, by the working of the Holy Spirit in the putting off of the body of flesh. So we administer baptism, which has replaced circumcision as, a, as the sign of the covenant. And we administer that uh, baptism to our children, believing that they belong with us in the visible church. And as we administer baptism, we look for the Holy Spirit to do that work of the putting off of the body of the flesh and the regeneration of the, of the heart. We look to the Spirit to do that which is symbolized in the sacrament of baptism. The power of God in baptism isn't tied to the moment when a, a child is baptized, um, but it is administered in the right use of it, in the grace of God is offered, not only offered, but exhibited and conferred through the Holy Spirit to such as that grace belongs to, according to the counsels of God in his own will and at his appointed time. And so uh, it's also important for those of you this morning who have been baptized to uh, when you see another baptism, that you are reminded of your own and of the grace of God to you in the power of God that has been at work in you and the spiritual privileges that are yours and the responsibilities to lead a life that, uh, of service to the Lord and thanksgiving to him. So at this time, I'm going to ask uh, Ned and Christina uh, to come forward with uh, Benjamin and uh, the family and the elders as well. It is a real joy to see uh, that Benjamin is joining his brother and his sister Penny 
and uh, in this family that it, as we as a church family have uh, known uh, Ned and Christina and their children for a long time. Ned indeed has grown up in this church and uh, to see God's blessing on their covenant family uh, has been a great joy to all of us as a church body. And so I want to just say a few words first to Ned and Christina that you will teach uh, Benjamin to read and understand the Word of God, that, that the Word of God will be uh, primary in your home and that you take uh, both uh, regular times and also occasionally as uh, situations come up to teach him to know and uh, understand the gospel and his need of, of a Savior. Also, I want to urge you to teach him to pray. And uh, as you pray with him and for him, that you would, uh, by your own example in this, uh, live your life in the presence of God, and he will see you doing that and will um, learn from your example uh, more than uh, so many things that can't be learned in other ways. And also that you would, as in addition to instructing him in the home, that you take regular, make regular use of the public means of grace, public worship, Sunday school, the sacraments, prayer, and Bible study. And as Benjamin grows, that he may know and love the communion of the church as you both know and love uh, your brothers and sisters in the family of God, that that will be, in a sense, something that uh, is, is just a part of his life as it is a part of uh, Penny and Ted's as well. And so I want to ask you these uh, questions uh, as we, before we administer baptism. Ned and Christina, do you acknowledge Benjamin's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? And do you claim God's covenant promises on his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do your own? And do you now unreservedly dedicate Benjamin to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example and that you will pray with and for him and that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And uh, to those who are here this morning who are members of the church, um, I would ask that you would respond affirmatively to this question. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents, Ned and Christina, in the Christian nurture of Benjamin? Hi, Benjamin. Benjamin, Nathaniel, Ely, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray for 
this work of grace in Benjamin's life, that is, he has been baptized and the water has been applied to him, may it be in your good grace that you would send your spirit to dwell in his heart, that he would know and love the Savior even from a very early age. Bless now, we pray, this sacrament, that it may uh, take effect in his heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I also asked uh, the grandfather of uh, Benjamin to lead us in prayer. So, Davy Lee. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace to your people. We thank you for the promise in the scripture that you will be a God to all who believe to you in and look to the Lord Jesus Christ and saving faith and to our children. We thank you for the privileges that come to such children, that Benjamin will hear the gospel in his home as well as in that of his grandparents, his aunts and his uncles, that he will be taught the scriptures that he will be prayed for and prayed with by his family. Thank you that he will be loved not only with the natural love of parents, but with the love of Christ, that he will have all the rich benefits of belonging to the church of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the word and the communion of the saints, the oversight of the elders. We pray, O oh God, that you would grant to this beautiful boy saving faith, a new heart, an art of heart of flesh to replace a heart of stone that we're all born with, a repentant and a tender heart, unwilling to offend his God, hating his own sin, repenting quickly, seeking to please the Lord Jesus Christ, because only, Father, only your Holy Spirit is able to do these things. We know that the most perfect and most godly parents, if there could be such things, are powerless to bring the dead to life or to give those under the power of sin any victory over that sin. So we pray and we ask that by your amazing grace you would be pleased to do this for this precious boy. Give wisdom and discernment and the love of godly parents to Ned and Christina as they seek to raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and grant that Benjamin and his brother and sister would one day very soon recognize and embrace all uh, that this baptism signifies the reality of being washed in the blood of Christ and of being united to him in his death and burial and resurrection. Father, grant that this child might be a mighty blessing to the church of Jesus Christ, that he may always adorn the gospel by his life of faithfulness and by his love for your people. Father, we ask all these things in humble reliance on your manifold mercies and boundless grace to accomplish them, and for the praise of our gracious and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.
stand for the hymn 150C. Gracious God, we pray for your blessings today as we bring our tithes and offerings to you. These tithes and offerings remind us of your continual provision. We have come to understand that everything we have comes from you, Lord. Bless our jobs and businesses with prosperity so that we may keep earning the funds to support not only our families, but your kingdom's work. Dear Lord, help us to rejoice in our giving. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated.
We're going to come to the uh, to the place of prayer in just a moment here. Uh, we have a number of things to pray for. Let me just mention a couple of things coming up this week. Do pray for Tara Pierce, who will be having uh, surgery for skin cancer on this Tuesday. And uh, um, it's a, just a little bit of skin cancer below her eye. The amount of... Uh, the, they will not know how extensive... Uh, uh, this will be until they actually get in there, how, whether they'll need to take a skin graft and things like that. So pray for that. We can pray also for Jenny Ely, who will be having uh, a procedure done uh, to help with pain in her legs. Uh, that'll be this Tuesday and Wednesday as well. And so we can be praying, uh, we can be praying for that. Um, but we do, uh, we're going to come to the Lord uh, in prayer together. So let's, uh, let's look to God uh, together. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you. You are a God full of uh, grace and wisdom. Uh, You are a God of truth and a God of might. Uh, You are a God of love. Uh, And how we thank you for the promises that are found in Holy Scripture. And we, even as we witness a baptism and uh, we have uh, precious little Benjamin receive the waters of baptism uh, today, we are all reminded that the gospel is that which we have first of all received. It is the good news of your grace toward us in our lost and fallen estate. Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us, that when we were dead in our sin and transgression, you made us alive together in Jesus Christ, that it was by your grace and your grace alone uh, that any of us are saved. And Lord, even after being saved, it is not that we suddenly live the life of a Christian by our own effort, Lord, but just the opposite. Instead, we are to work out our uh, salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is you who works in us both to will and to do. Uh, Lord, we praise you that you were pleased to save us and to bring us into your kingdom and to reveal your son to us. And we pray, O Lord, that we would live as faithful disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. O God in heaven, how we thank you for this congregation, your church, and we pray that your sustaining hand uh, would be upon us. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless the public ministry of the word in this place, that the preached word would go forth with power. We pray for many of the various ministries of this congregation, the Bible studies and uh, the youth group, uh, for the ESL ministry and for the coming vacation Bible school. And Lord, we lift these things up before you and we pray that your hand would be upon them Uh, that wherever and however the Word of God is spoken, that it would be met with uh, the power of your Holy Spirit coming alongside of it, changing hearts and changing lives, and bringing lost sinners again into fellowship with you. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that uh, we as a congregation would foster love, would foster uh, 
uh, tender relationships one with another. We pray, Lord, that even as we've looked at the last couple of weeks in adult Sunday school, that we would be those who do confess our sins one to another, and that we would be those who are quick to forgive one another in the Lord. Uh, We pray, O God in heaven, that uh, we would love one another from the heart, that you would grant the help of your Holy Spirit, O, O living God, in all of our relationships. And grant, O Lord, also that as we live in this world, many of us engage day by day in uh, labor, in a secular workplace, or we, we live in the communities in which we live and have many friends and acquaintances who do not know you, we pray that in everything we would show forth the Lord Jesus Christ by the things that we say, the attitudes that we have, that in everything we would be his. We do thank you for the baptism of Benjamin today. We would pray for him as we pray for all the covenant children of this congregation. Uh, We thank you for each and every one of them. And we pray, O Lord our God, that they early would come uh, to love and to adore the Lord Jesus Christ. That this would be a generation, O Lord our God, uh, that does not depart from the faith, but just the opposite, a generation that is filled with zeal for the kingdom of God, for love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and a desire to serve Him and Him alone. O Lord, our God, we pray for the children of this church, O Lord, that they would grow up as they learn more, that they would be prepared to serve You in this world. Uh, that they would be developing godly friendships even now, that they would live with clear consciences before you. Lord, our God, that they would have an earnest desire to serve you and to seek you all the days of their lives. Lord, our God in heaven, we pray also for um, uh, many of the needs of this congregation. We thank you, O Lord, uh, for being with uh, Christy Bennett Uh, amidst the the trips to the hospital this past week concerning her eyesight. We pray, O Lord, our God in heaven, that you'd give continued wisdom for uh, the doctors. We pray that if there uh, is an issue with her retina that will eventually need to be addressed, Lord, that you'd give wisdom and skill to the doctors and bring healing to her body. Father in heaven, we do pray for Tara Pierce this coming week as she has a surgery for the skin cancer that she has. Lord, we pray that this skin cancer would be completely removed, that there would be no recurrence of it. We pray, O God in heaven, that that the amount that they have to remove would not be uh, very significant and that you would give grace to Tara and Jody both amidst the time of recovery, give skill to the doctors and fill their hearts with peace. Pray as well for Jenny Ely, Lord, and for the procedure that she will be having on her leg to correct pain. And Lord, we ask that you would be near to her and give her a calm and trusting spirit in you. And Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to her legs, that, these, that this procedure, Lord, would correct, uh, 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 correct the pain that she's experiencing, Lord, and that you would bring healing to her body. We thank you, Lord, for the successful surgery for Gene New this past week. Be near to him, we pray. We pray for Sean Larkin, O Lord. And we uh, do pray that even though he has had uh, this very severe 
a pain. We thank you that it seems that they have discovered what it is. It's a labral tear in his hip. And we pray, O oh Lord, our God, that he would be enabled to have the injection that he needs, that it would be able to be scheduled soon, and that it would provide the relief that he needs as well. But uphold him amidst this time. We pray as well for uh, Deb Connor and her need, need for a, a knee replacement uh, soon. We pray, Lord, that you would oversee all the scheduling of that and fill Deb and Rich just also with a sense of your presence and your peace. Pray, Lord, for Joe and Amy's daughter, Marari, and we ask, Lord, that these severe headaches that she's been experiencing, Lord, would uh, would decrease, and, Lord, that she uh, would experience relief from her condition, give wisdom to the doctors as they uh, treat her, we pray. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you that Pat Murray is able to be among us after her uh, recent uh, difficulties breathing, and we ask, Lord, that you would uh, bring healing to her body also. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are with us as a church. Lord, we pray for your glory to be seen throughout the world, Lord, that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forth in power among all peoples and all nations. Lord, bless the work of your church in this world, the witness to the gospel that is born. And Lord, we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, we're going to sing now before hearing God's word, a very appropriate hymn to, uh, to sing before uh, God's word is opened up. And it's the hymn 172, Speak, O Lord. For it reminds us that even as the word of God is open, that this is not the word of man, but it is in truth the word of God, and it is his voice that we desire to hear, that we might hear it and respond in faith and obedience. Hymn 172, we'll stand to sing.
invite you to open with me now to the book of Galatians. Uh, Our text today will be Galatians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 11 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. Galatians 1, verse 11, down through verse 24. You'll remember that the great theme of the book of Galatians is the gospel of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Paul is zealous that the Galatian church would not forsake the gospel, but would both understand it and believe it. And Our prayer ought to be the same for us uh, today. Now, to that end of defending the gospel of Jesus Christ, today Paul is going to defend where that gospel comes from, the gospel which Paul preached. And his point is going to be that it is a gospel which did not originate with him or with any other apostles, but originates with God himself. And we need to have that same confidence. If we are to come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to have the firm conviction and assurance that it is not man's gospel, but that it is God's gospel. So as we look at God's word, let us see that as a theme. Galatians 1, uh, beginning in verse 11. Uh, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This said, just reading in God's word, let's again seek his face uh, in prayer. Lord, uh, we do seek your face uh, because we are about to hear from your word. And it is our prayer, as we just sang, Lord, that through your word you would speak and that you would give us ears to hear. We thank you that this is the word of God. 
And Lord, we thank you that in your grace you have gathered us today to listen to it. And we ask, Lord, now for the powerful presence of your Spirit in our midst, that we would uh, re- that we would uh, receive your word, that we would mark it, that we would inwardly digest it. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why should you believe the gospel and be a Christian? It's a rather important question. I can think of a few questions that are more important. Why should you believe the gospel and be a Christian? Well, there are a number of ways that you may answer that. One answer that a person might give would be, well, I should believe it because, well, that's how I was raised. It's part of my roots. It's part of my family identity. We're a Christian family. I do want to say that if you were raised in a Christian family, I praise God for that. You have the most privileged upbringing that a person ever could have. But do you know that in itself is not the reason to be a Christian? In fact, there are lots of people in this world who were raised in homes that believed in other religions or in homes where there was no reference to God at all. Well, should they just believe whatever they were raised with? Well, not at all. The questions that religion deals with are far too important. Is there a God? Why am I here? Can I be saved? Those are far too important questions to simply say, well, everyone should simply believe the religion that they were brought up with. And so merely saying, well, that's how I was raised, is not reason in itself to believe in Christianity. Well, a second reason that somebody might give would be, well, I think I should believe Christianity because it's what I have been taught. Maybe it was somebody that you really respected or somebody that that you looked up to that was a Christian and taught you to believe. You say, well, I should believe it because that's what they believe. Well, again, I am so, so thankful if you have had a person like that in your life. What a What a privilege it is to have a man or a woman who is a man or a woman of integrity who has taught you about the truth of the Scripture. What a blessing. But do you know that in itself also is not the reason that you should believe? After all, there are a lot of really intelligent, uh, interesting, competent teachers uh, who disagree on subjects of religion. Many who do not believe Christianity. It's impossible to simply believe, well, what all the smart people believe. Well, because all the smart people disagree with one another. So we ought not to simply believe what we were taught. Well, a third reason that a person might give to believe is they say, well, perhaps I should believe because it is what makes sense to me. A person might say, well, Christianity is the religion that I find most satisfying. It is satisfying intellectually. It is also satisfying emotionally. It meets my emotional needs. It just seems right. Well, again, I would say, 
Well, Christianity is extraordinarily satisfying intellectually and emotionally and every other need that we have. But do you know that in itself also is not the reason that you ought to believe? Well, why is that? Well, it is because our brains are often uh, dreadfully unreliable. There are all sorts of things that you end up changing your mind about in life, right? You grow up and you grow out of kind of your former ignorance and uh, perhaps if you're believing in Christianity only because it is what makes sense to you, perhaps what makes sense to you might change tomorrow or the day after. And so that's not in itself the reason that we ought to believe in Christianity. Well, would you just say, preacher, get to it. Why is it that we should believe the gospel and be a Christian? Well, if it isn't because of my upbringing, merely, or if it isn't because it was simply what I was taught or what makes sense to me, then why? Well, the answer is this. It is because the gospel is from God and it is true. And that's why. The one and the only truly compelling reason to believe is this. That this is a gospel that is from God, and it is a gospel that is true. And can I say to you that are young people in this room, maybe you're a child here, do you know that the reason that I really, really long for you to believe in Jesus Christ And the reason that your parents really, really long for you to believe in Jesus Christ isn't simply because it's the way that you were brought up or it's because it's what's going to make other people happy. We want you to believe it because I know with all of my heart that this gospel is from God and it is absolutely true. I want you to believe the truth because it is the truth of God that will ultimately result in our deliverance from sins and experiencing eternal life from Him. That's why we want you to believe. It is God's gospel. And dear friends, this is the very thing that Paul himself is bringing before these Galatians. Paul wants the Galatians to understand and to believe the gospel. And Later in this book, he's going to explain what this gospel is all about. How it's a gospel of God's free grace and infinite love towards sinners. How it's a gospel by which the Lord Jesus Christ was sent to atone for our sins. It is a gospel which secures forgiveness. It is a gospel which grants to us a new nature. Oh, the beauty and glory of this gospel that assures us of eternal life. It is this gospel in all of its fullness that Paul is going to open up. But before he gets into any of this, he wants to say to them, it's not just my gospel. This isn't just my version of things. This is not just my opinion, but this is the gospel of God. And that's why you ought to believe it. See, that's his point here in verses 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the the gospel that was preached by me, it is not 
man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. In other words, all those categories that we just went through, Paul's saying, well, this is not merely how I was brought up. It's not merely that I heard this one time from a pretty good teacher. It's not merely that I came up with all of this out of my really intelligent brain, and you ought to accept my opinion. Paul doesn't say any of that, but rather he says this, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You should believe it. Because it wasn't Paul's invention. It wasn't simply a tradition. But rather, it was a revelation. And as God's revelation, this gospel that he preached was a gospel that is authoritative and unique and perfect and unchangeable and is the only way of salvation. And so this is Paul's claim that the gospel he received, he received from God. The Galatians needed to be convinced of this. You need to be convinced of this today as well. But now what he does in the rest of the chapter then, really from verses 13 down through chapter down through verse 24, and actually it's going to kind of extend into chapter 2, is that Paul gives details from his own autobiography to kind of validate this point. That it wasn't his gospel merely, but that it is God's gospel. Now, this section that we just read, that we're about to get into, is a very interesting part of of the Bible, because here we're going to be given certain details, especially about Paul's immediate kind of post-conversion life that were not given elsewhere in Scripture. They're kind of juicy details. That's what you were doing, and we kind of wish that we even had a little bit more. But nonetheless, the important point that you see is that this autobiography is given to help kind of validate the point, to validate the point that the gospel that Paul was given is not his alone, but it is God's. Okay, It is God's revelation to him. That's the theme of this whole section. And that's the reason that Paul is going to go into what he is. So what I want us to do today here with... Uh, and this is going to kind of be our outline. Let me say before I give you the outline that, um, you know, I, I read usually about 15 commentaries and various things in preparation for a sermon. And uh, sometimes I think that one of those commentaries just nails it and gets it exactly right. And it was one of these times that John Stott and his commentary just, just I, I couldn't do better than it kind of. And so... The outline I'm giving you, the three points are essentially, they're not identical to his, but more or less uh, they are what he has. And I'm drawing maybe even heavier than normal from one writer uh, today, but just kind of want to be upfront with that uh, today. But the, the gospel here that Paul is speaking was God's revelation to Paul. This is our outline. The gospel was God's revelation to Paul for three different reasons. The gospel was God's revelation to Paul, first of all, because he was the least likely person to believe it. Verses 13 and 14. That's talking about Paul's pre-conversion life. Secondly, the gospel was God's revelation to Paul because, secondly, it came to him by divine grace alone. It came to him by divine grace alone. We're going to see that in verses 15 and 16. 
And that's going to speak about what happened at his conversion. And then thirdly, we are going to see that the gospel was God's revelation to Paul because he learned it from no other person. And that's going to speak of Paul post-conversion. And that's verses 16 through 24. So the gospel, Paul is saying, the gospel was God's revelation to me for three reasons. First of all, it was God's revelation to Paul because he was the least likely person to believe it. Secondly, it came to him by divine grace alone. And thirdly, he learned it from no other person. First of all, uh, the gospel was God's revelation to Paul because he was the least likely person to believe it. Uh, In verses 13 and 14, uh, Paul describes his life before he became a Christian. And he summarizes it in two different statements. First of all, he says that he zealously persecuted the church. That's verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul says, before I became a Christian, I was an obsessed man. And my obsession was to extinguish the Christian church. You see, Paul didn't tolerate Christianity. He didn't think, well, it's fine that that would be one religion among many other religions, but rather he considered Christianity to be blasphemy and he tried to destroy the church. Acts 9 verses 1 and 2 give us an example of what Saul was like, or Paul, before his conversion. It it speaks of him there, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You realize if we had a church service like this, in the days before Paul was converted, that we would have been thinking, even fearing, that this one particular zealous Jewish man who had a lot of power and authority might walk in here and begin carrying us captive away to the authorities in order that many of us would be imprisoned or even killed. He was a terrorist. He was a terror to the people of God. And that's who Paul was. But the second thing Paul tells us about himself was that he painstakingly observed Jewish traditions. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You'll remember in the first century that Orthodox Judaism had developed an entire kind of code of rules that was based on their interpretation of uh, the law. And Paul was a member of the very strictest party of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. And in Philippians chapter 3, he even calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as to the law, I was blameless. That is, he painstakingly sought to conform his life outwardly to every tenet of this Jewish code. He lived strictly in the tradition of his of his fathers. And for him, it became a kind of badge of honor, a mark of of self-righteousness. 
And so this is the description of who Paul was. Now, I just simply want to ask you the question, is this the kind of person who was likely to become a Christian? <laughs> is this the kind of guy that you would have thought, yep, he's going to be with us soon as a Christian? No, right? Not at all. I mean, there, there is nothing in him that kind of naturally predisposed him to believe that Jesus is the Lord. Is Lord. He saw Christians as a, as a threat to the, to the way of life that he believed so firmly in. And he, and he saw them as such a threat that he was willing to give himself uh, to drag them away and to persecute them. He was violently opposed to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. That's the man that Paul was. Let me just stop and say at this moment, and this is part of the glory of the gospel, is it not? The gospel that Paul would end up preaching is that if God was able to save a man like Paul, he is able to save all kinds of men and women, no matter the life that they live. The Orthodox Jewish person that you know, walking to synagogue on the Sabbath, the Lord can come and can convince such a one that Jesus is the Son of God. The fanatical Muslim who wishes Christianity to be destroyed, the Lord can come and can save that person as well. The devoted secularist who considers the Bible a kind of child's fantasy land, or the drug addict whose mind is so fixed on simply getting the next fix that that he will seek to manipulate and lie to anybody in order to get it. Do you know that we could just go on and on, but that the Lord is able to save all of these kinds of people. He saved Paul. No matter how far it is that they seem from the kingdom, no matter how they despise Christ and hate Christ now, remember this, that Paul that God saved Paul and God can save them also, you know, we don't even have to look at the life of the Apostle Paul to know that. We can look simply into our own hearts, can't we? Because I ask you, dear child of God, were you one who naturally believed in Christ? Who naturally loved Him? Who naturally viewed Christ's blood shed on Calvary as precious? Did you naturally want to reorient your life around His? And dear friends, the answer to that, the clear scriptural answer is no, not at all. That by nature we were haters of God and there was no fear of God at all before our eyes and we despised the Son until the Lord came and sovereignly opened up our eyes. So what was true of Paul was true in a sense of all of us. Neither he nor we are naturally disposed toward Christianity. And yet, and this is Paul's point, these are exactly the type of people that he is pleased to reveal his Son to. So I ask you, do you believe that there are others who currently hate God, who God is able to save? There are, dear friends. He did it in Paul's life. He can do it in ours. Paul was not naturally disposed to believe the gospel. Secondly, 
Why should we believe that the gospel is God's revelation? Because the gospel, uh, or excuse me, the gospel is God's revelation to Paul because it came to him by divine grace alone. It came to him by divine grace alone. You know, there was a moment in Paul's life that changed everything. And that occurred while he was on that Damascus road. He was going to persecute others who were of the way. And then suddenly, dramatically, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared and spoke to him. Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul himself was thrown to the ground and he was blinded and he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, everything was changed in his life. And notice how Paul describes that change here. He's going to do it here in verses uh, 15 and 16. But before we read what, what he says happened to him, notice in verses 13 and 14 who the subject of all of the verbs are when he described his former life in Judaism. It was what I was doing. I persecuted the church. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So zealous was I for the traditions of the fathers. But now notice after that Damascus Road experience what he says happened. Verses 15 and 16. Who is the subject of the verbs? But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace when he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What happened in Paul's life? Well, it was that God in all of his grace and mercy met with Paul. And you'll notice that he describes God's grace to him in several different ways. He, he says, first of all, it was God who set me apart before I was even born. Just as Jeremiah can say in Jeremiah 1.5 that it was while he was in the womb that the Lord uh, knew him. Here Paul can say that God had a divine purpose for me long before I was even aware of it. And then the next thing that we see was that it was this God who called me, called Paul in his grace. That is that on that Damascus road there was a call, an effectual call. A call to salvation in Jesus Christ. A call to his ministry as an apostle. And Paul is saying here that I became a Christian not because I suddenly had a bright and brilliant idea that popped into my head. No, I became a Christian because God intervened and made me his child. It's a call. The third step in God's grace here was that God then was pleased to reveal His Son. Literally, the, the preposition is in Him. God was pleased to reveal His Son in Him. That is, Paul notices then that he was saved by the good pleasure of God. 
and that by God's good pleasure, he began to see Jesus Christ for who he really was. Now, certainly before his conversion, Paul knew about Jesus. That's why he was persecuting the church. He knew the facts about Jesus' life and about his miracles. He knew that he died a death on a Roman cross. He knew that people claimed that he was risen from the dead. He knew all of the facts. But what happened on that Damascus road is that the truth about who Jesus really was was suddenly revealed in Paul so that now, instead, for example, of seeing that Christ died as he thought before simply as a criminal, he saw that Christ Jesus died as a sacrifice for my sins. And Saul now, instead of seeing that the mere claims were that he rose from the dead, instead he now encountered the living Christ. And instead of thinking that his own works were good enough to make him right before God, he now realized that all of his works were dung and that he lived only uh, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, it was an inward change, a revelation that occurred in him concerning who Jesus was. What an inward change it was. Then the fourth step in that grace was that not only was God pleased to reveal His Son, but He did it in order that Paul might preach this, this, uh, uh, this Christ among the Gentiles. That is, Paul himself received a special task, a special calling to serve uh, the Lord and to be a preacher of this gospel among uh, the Gentiles. Now again, if we look at what happened to Paul here, we see Paul in many ways as a template for how God saves each one of us. And when God saves you, it isn't because, or, or when you become saved, how do you become saved? Well, when you become saved, the primary thing isn't that you changed your mind or that you decided to get your life together or that you, of your own initiative, took a leap of faith. Rather, when you are saved, it is owing to the grace and the love and the powerful working of Almighty God. And when Paul describes what happened to him, he describes it in terms of what God has done. And friends, we need to do the same. Whenever we are to give testimony of of how we became saved, let us first of all talk about what God has done. That God sent His Son to die for me when I was a sinner. That God loved me from before the foundation of the world and chose me. That God opened up my heart to believe the truth about, about Jesus Christ. When others ask you about your testimony, make it not about you, but about God, first of all. And about what God has done in your life. He is the one who has acted. And when we talk to our own children about the things of Christ, let it be about what God has done for us. Dear friends, when you and I are tempted, as sometimes we are, to become full of ourselves, full of our own actions and activities and accomplishments, 
Let us always remember, like Paul always remembered, that we are what we are by the grace of God. And so where was it that Paul got his gospel from? Where was it that Paul got his gospel from? Was it from man? Was it simply the invention of Paul's own head? Was he naturally disposed to believe this gospel? Where did it come from? It came by the sovereign intervention of God. It was a gospel that was revealed to Paul. But this now moves us thirdly to the point, the gospel was God's revelation to Paul because he learned it then from no other person. Because he learned it from no other person. You have to remember in the book of Galatians that Paul was uh, kind of under attack from certain false teachers in Galatia. And these false teachers, I believe, thought, well, the real apostles, those are the ones who are in Jerusalem. And Paul has kind of stolen the gospel from them and has distorted it. He's changed it. He's not a real apostle. Look what Paul has done. That's kind of what the false teachers were saying. But what Paul goes on to do in this passage is he goes on to to describe how his authority as an apostle was a kind of independent authority. He was, in himself, an apostle. Equal with the other apostles, not under them. So he establishes his own kind of independent authority as an apostle, and yet as an apostle who is in agreement with the other apostles and with the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's the reason for all of these autobiographical details uh, that he gives. We're going to just move over these uh, rather quickly here. Uh, You'll notice beginning in verse 16 uh, that he begins to explain what happened during the several years after his conversion on that Damascus road. We actually learn from Acts chapter 9 uh, that immediately after being converted, he began to preach the Jesus Christ whom he had once persecuted and preached him in Damascus itself. But now Paul says that that after doing that, then he then went uh, 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 to uh, Arabia. Okay, so whereas you might think he became a Christian, so immediately he would go to Jerusalem. Paul and God's providence didn't. Rather, he became a Christian, he began to preach Christ in Damascus, and then spent time in Arabia, which in the Roman province of Arabia was actually kind of near Damascus. So he didn't necessarily go, go far into the kind of what we would think of as the Arabian Peninsula today. But rather that region in Damascus, well, near Damascus. Well, what, what did Paul do there, though? Well, likely he did some preaching there, but probably uh, most of the time was spent in meditation, in study of the scriptures, in thinking, in the working out of the implications of this gospel that the that that the Lord was revealing to him. And so you want to think. Where did something as majestic as the book of Romans or the theology that he reveals in Galatians, where did it come from? Well, it came by the inspiration of God, surely in those years soon after he was converted. And he began to piece 
everything together with the help of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. And so he spent time in Arabia. And then we are told, he then, verse 17, returns again to Damascus. This is probably then the incident described in Acts 9.26, when because of his preaching in Damascus, the other disciples actually had to uh, send him out of the city. They lower him in a basket down a wall so that he can then flee the city. And it's at that point we are told, and here Paul describes that only then did he go to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem only for 15 days. And while he was there for those 15 days, most of his time was spent with Cephas, or Peter. Now, it was for 15 days after three years, which means that Paul did not only get his gospel from Peter. The Lord had already revealed it to him. But now over these 15 days, he had opportunities to speak with Peter. Wouldn't have you loved to have been a, a fly on that wall? And here there, there are discussions of this glorious gospel of grace. And Paul says, I didn't meet with any of the other apostles. And then he mentions James, the Lord's brother. Uh, who was, again, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts Acts 9 as well, it seems to indicate there that he also uh, had interactions with the church that was in Jerusalem during uh, during that short stay. But it was a short stay nonetheless. He says, I saw none of the other apostles. And then... And and in verse 20, he confirms, I'm writing to you, before God I do not lie, but then I went into the region of Syria and uh, Cilicia. So he was sent on to Caesarea and to Antioch in Syria, and then to uh, Cilicia, which is uh, the region where Tarsus was, uh, where he was born, and there he preached and so forth. And he explains, I did not at this time have a further relationship with any of the other churches that were in the region of Judea. So in the whole region of Judea, where Jerusalem was, he seems to be saying here, I did not have any interaction with those other churches. They knew me only by what their ears heard of my ministry. I didn't consult with the other apostles, but rather they heard what I had done and they glorified God because of me. And so here we see Paul explaining carefully how his authority was an independent authority as an apostle, and yet it was in agreement with what the rest of the church was believing and was holding. And he underlines this now for these Galatian believers. Well, what can we make of this then by application? We've seen from Paul's Uh, own description of himself, why it was that his gospel was a gospel that was not from man, but from God. He was not disposed to believe it. When it came to him, it came to him by the amazing, powerful grace of God. And then he didn't derive this gospel from the other apostles in the church, but rather it was a gospel that was given to him by God himself. So let's make application of this. And to kind of make application here at the end where we began today. And it is this, that when you receive the gospel of God, 
you receive not simply what came from the mind of man or from church tradition, but you receive that which was revealed by God to his apostles. And when you read the Apostle Paul, as 13 books of the New Testament are written by Paul, so much of the rich biblical theology that we have comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. That what you are reading there is not simply the writings of one man, but rather the writings of the man that God supremely chose to reveal himself through in this New Testament era. And that makes all of the difference. It means that we can't set Paul against the other portions of the Bible. You know, it's actually Thomas Jefferson who uh, said, or who described Paul as the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. And I think that that same mentality, you'll find it today. People will say, well, Jesus had uh, simply a gospel of love, a gospel of tolerance. And oh, Paul, how harsh he was in the things that he spoke. Well, Paul makes clear from the beginning, his gospel was the gospel that was revealed through Jesus Christ to him. It's not a different gospel. He's not the corrupter of the doctrines of Christianity, but rather, he was not predisposed to believe in Christ at all. It was only that Christ himself revealed himself to uh, Paul. Similarly, we can say, that Paul didn't merely reflect, well, the, the teaching or the mindset of the first century Christian church. Sometimes you hear that kind of thinking as well. Well, you see what we have here in, in the New Testament. is just that's how the church in the first century thought. And we kind of need to adjust those things for our century in which we live. Well, Paul says, I didn't collaborate with the other apostles. It's not that we all got together and we came up with this thing that reflected all of our thinking. No, my gospel was a gospel that came from Jesus Christ. And it was in agreement with what the other apostles said, but it was from Christ. You see, dear friends, to receive or to, to, to consider the writings of Paul is to consider the very gospel of God. And it's a gospel of God that we dare not adjust We dare not edit. We dare not pick and choose what things that he wrote we desire to believe. But rather we take everything that is given to us through him and we say, this is the word of God and I believe it. That's what the Bible calls us to do. It is a revelation from God. You believe that this is a revelation from God. Young people, again, can I say to you, Do you believe that this gospel is not simply a gospel taught to you by your parents? It's it's not simply the way that you were brought up. But this is truth. It is God's truth. And we must embrace it for the good of our souls and for His glory. We embrace it for that reason. Parents, as you raise your children in the Lord, is it clear to them that you're bringing them up this way, not because simply you think it's a good idea. That, that your first motivation is not simply that they would, they would believe to make, uh, be because, well, it's just what your family does. 
where it would make mom and dad happy, but rather I want you to believe this because it is the truth of God that he's given to us. It changed my life, you tell them. I didn't naturally believe this stuff, but God changed my life to believe it. My prayer for you, dear children, is that he would do the same in your life. Do you say that? Do you say that to your to others that you come into contact with, you spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only gospel that saves. Well, might the Lord help us to believe that it is truly the gospel of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the way that Paul received this gospel. and We pray that we would receive it also as what it is in truth, the very gospel of God. Thank you for the way that you raised him up as the apostle to the Gentiles the one to speak this truth, truth from you, so that we would have it in the day in which we live. Help us, Lord, that we would not look for another, but we would believe what you have revealed, for we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. We're going to sing in response. It's hymn number uh, 238, number 200. And 38, this is a glorious hymn about the praise that we give to God for His sovereign grace in our lives. Praise my soul, the God that sought thee, wretched wanderer far astray, found thee lost and kindly brought thee from the paths of death away. You'll notice that this hymn is actually written by the writer of our national anthem, Francis Scott Key, and it's a glorious hymn of praise uh, to God, hymn 238.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.